Then I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. If you're a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're towards the end of a series in Exodus. Uh, one quick announcement. Next Sunday afternoon, uh, if you're a young adult, i.e. senior high and up, uh, we cater for the young at heart. Uh, Come along to Clara Kang's place. Mrs. Kang has kindly uh, opened their place to us. Bring your swimmers and tennis racket uh, and some money for food. We're going to be looking at keeping the main thing, the main thing about the gospel-centered life. So it should be a great time. Uh, If you do have your Bible with you, if you don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, If you do, open up to Exodus 24. Uh, Exodus chapter 24. We actually only have nine messages left in this series uh, after this week. It is flying. Uh, The reason why we do this, the reason why we slow down and look at a book at this speed is because we believe, friends, that every single verse here is precious. Every single verse here is inspired by God and therefore comes with power to change our lives. Uh, I'll confess to you, Uh, This week, I found this a tough one to prepare because there is so much gold in it. And uh, we're going to look this morning at a passage that if you were just reading the Bible normally, I think my experience is I would have quickly passed over this. And yet this collection of verses here in Exodus 24 is perhaps one of the most important verses in the whole of the Old Testament. So we, we... Owe it the same reverence that we owe to God Himself. So, why don't you read with me, and then I'm going to pray for us and ask God for His help as we begin this message. Exodus 24, verse 1. Then He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came out and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. 
There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Friends, would you join with me in praying? Lord God, we want to thank you this morning for your word. A powerful word. A life-giving word. A word filled with your promises. And a word about Jesus. And Lord, this morning we just ask for your help. Lord, we need your help as we open and read this word because we want to be changed by it and we want to encounter you. And so, Lord, I just pray you would help me. Help me this morning. Help me this morning to faithfully preach your word to your people. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, friends, we live in an age that is increasingly skeptical about promises made by others. We are the options generation where we suffer from a condition called FOMO, the fear of missing out. And the fruit of that is we kind of don't like to lock ourselves into anything at all. I'll be there really means I'll be there unless I get a better offer. Or I'll be there unless I don't feel up to it at the time. In a similar way, even for our political leaders, it can kind of feel sometimes like we live in this short-sighted culture where leaders will say whatever is necessary to ensure that they're re-elected the next time. They'll make promises like that no one will be worse off or that they'll grow the economy, or that there'll be no increases in tax. Here's a question I want us to think about this morning as we begin this message. And the question is this. When was the last time you made a promise that you really meant to keep? When was the last time you made a promise that you really intended to keep? 
you know, for many of us, it was probably about this time last year uh, with our New Year's resolution, where we kind of promised ourselves, you know, I won't eat chocolate for a whole year, um, or I'll like run 100 kilometers every single week, or like I'll pray every single day. Um, if you're living at home, maybe the last time you made a promise you really intended to keep was when you said, I'll clean my room right after this episode. I swear I'll do it. You know, our culture, if you want to show that you're serious, we have all these different things that you're meant to say to show that you mean it. Uh, one of them is like, by my mother's grave, you know, which I've never really understood why people say that, because if your mother's passed away, I don't know where she fits into the equation. But anyway, um, if you're pledging, uh, you know, you might say, you know, if you're making an oath, you might say, so help me God. Uh, if you're really serious in our culture, if you really mean it, then of course you'll whip out the pinky finger because we all know that there's no higher promise than a pinky promise. <laughs> but the truth is that at some point, every parent will get down on their knees, look their child in the eyes and say, my son, I promise. I'll bear that performance. I'll buy you that gift. I won't let you down. But here's the problem. So many promises are broken. So many promises are broken, it can be easy to treat them with skepticism. You know, many of us sitting here in this room have had our parents look us in the eyes and make promises that they couldn't keep. You know, many of us sitting here in this room have looked our kids in the eyes and made promises that we couldn't keep. Here's the even bigger problem. Because of our culture, because of our experience, we can treat not only the promises of other people with skepticism, but the promises of God himself. I know God said that, but I don't know. I know that's what the Bible says, but we'll see. I know Jesus promised, it, promised that, but I'm just not sure. Friends, though we might be tempted to disbelieve due to our experience, here's the truth. God never, ever, ever breaks his promises. What he says will happen always happens. God is incapable of making promises he cannot keep because nothing can surprise him. He sees all things. Circumstances cannot overwhelm him. He is limitless in power. When he says he will do something, you can be more sure of it than the sun rising tomorrow. You see, God's faithfulness to his promises matters because today's passage is all about his special promises to Israel and by extension to us. Uh, this morning's message, which we'll be covering the first 11 verses of our chapter, uh, is entitled A Covenant in Blood. And I've got three simple points uh, for those that are taking notes, a covenant sealed, that will be the longest 
point, so don't panic if we're well and truly into the message and I'm still on point one. A covenant celebrated and then a covenant applied, which will be very brief at the end. Three points, one hope for us this morning, friends, and that is that we'd find deep assurance in God's commitment to his promises. That's where we're trekking this morning to see the assurance that I believe is to be found in the promises of God. So let's dive in with our first point, which is a covenant sealed. Now, just by way of context, uh, the Bible teaches that from the very beginning of, of time, God has been working to create a covenant people. A covenant is an old English word that simply means agreement. It's a set of promises, and we are part of his covenant people. And our story actually begins back in Genesis, where God took an elderly pagan man and promised to make from him a great nation and to bless the whole world through him. God had already fulfilled part of his promise by the time we move through Genesis in, in blessing his elderly wife, Sarah, with a child, Isaac. Isaac, who then had Jacob, and through Jacob, then 12 sons and the birth of the nation of Israel. And as our story begins in the book of Exodus, we find God's people in bondage in Egypt from which he has rescued them. And by the time we jump through to chapter 19 of this book, we see that God has freely offered to enter into an agreement with them, a covenant with them. He says, keep my agreement and you will be my treasured possession. And all of the people say, yes, we will do this. We will do it. In our passage today, God then orchestrates a special worship service by which he formally enters into a covenant, an agreement with his people. At the last few weeks, we've spent examining the book of the covenant, which is this collection of instructions from chapter 20 through to chapter 23 that really explains the implications of the Ten Commandments in more detail. And last week, uh, Glenn helped us so helpfully to see that, that God, after giving the book of the covenant, promised an angel to prepare their way, to safely guide them into the promised land. Now God begins to orchestrate this worship service to confirm his special agreement. But this worship service is going to look a little different from what we might be familiar with. So turn open your Bibles again and read those first two verses with me from chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. God calls a select group up to Mount Sinai. It's Moses and Aaron, and actually Aaron's two boys, Nadab and Abihu, have a bit of a bad reputation because they offered an unauthorized sacrifice later in the Bible and got destroyed. Um, with 70 elders, uh, along with them, presumably elders that had been chosen way back in chapter 18 on the advice of Jethro. These were the most influential leaders in the community, a group of 74 men in total. 
73 remain behind at a distance, worshipping God, and Moses alone draws near. Read with me verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses returns back down the mountain and reads to the people the book of the covenant that we've been reading for the last few weeks. And they're unified in their agreement. Notice there's no compulsion or forced agreement. Just as they had back in chapter 19, verse 8, they freely choose to enter into an agreement with God. Read with me verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses rises early in the morning and he builds an altar at Mount Sinai following the instruction of God back in chapter 20 that we read about. A simple altar. It would have been an altar just made with dirt, with unhewn rocks around the edge. And he adds 12 pillars to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the people of God are gathered around. Verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. These young men get sent by Moses to ascend to the altar and they perform two different types of sacrifice. The first is a burnt offering. A burnt offering was about fellowship with God through atonement. An animal would be sacrificed and its blood and its life that was poured out would take the place of the person bearing the sin. And through the substitutionary atonement of the animal, atonement with a substitute in that person's place, uh, the animal would then be burnt completely. And it would symbolize this picture of total commitment to the whole uh, of this animal, as the whole of this animal is sacrificed to the Lord, total commitment to the Lord. The second type of offering that is uh, presented on this altar is a peace offering, which is really a celebration of fellowship. An animal would be sacrificed as in the previous case, but the difference is that after the sacrifice of the animal, there would be a barbecue um, and the animal would be cooked and eaten. Uh, It's a peace offering. It's a celebration of fellowship. We read on in verses 6 and 7. And you shall make 50 clasps... Oh, sorry, wrong chapter. <laughs> um, it's like, well, I don't remember reading that before. <laughs> and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, And we will be obedient. It's this graphic scene in these verses. You know, I looked it up this week. A bull has about 40 liters of blood in it. And they would slit the throat of this animal and collect the blood from each bull into bowls. Half of the blood is sprinkled on the altar and half of the blood is put aside. Moses then reads the book of the covenant to the people again and they reaffirm their commitment for a second time. And what happens next 
is truly remarkable. Read with me verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses takes half the blood from each bull. That's about 20 liters per animal and sprinkles it over all the people in their hair, staining their robes, on their clothes, on their skin, on their faces, everywhere. You know, this was not a time where people bathed every day. Water was scarce. And it's possible this blood could have been on them for days. And then Moses says something incredible. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. You know, there is only one other instance in the whole of the Old Testament where this expression, blood of the covenant, is ever used. It's the only time in the whole Bible that blood is literally sprinkled on the people of God. It would have been a grotesque scene. I mean, blood would have been everywhere. And yet it was designed by God to be impressed in the minds of the people. You couldn't forget this scene. But what on earth does it mean? What does it mean? Well, four things. Firstly, this scene was about God entering into a conditional agreement with his people. Uh, Chapter 19, as we've been mentioning before, refers to it. It says in verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You know, the most important word in many ways in this passage has two letters only. If. In Genesis, God had made an unconditional promise to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and through you, I'll bless the nations. No conditions. But this covenant is different. They would be his treasured possession. They would be a kingdom of priests. They would be a holy nation that's a set-apart nation if. If they obey his voice and keep his covenant. It was a gracious covenant. They don't deserve it. He chose them out of all the nations and he rescued them and they freely offered to them this relationship. But it was a conditional covenant if they obey his voice. Now it's important to remember that what God was asking of them was not too difficult or unreasonable at all. Uh, Moses puts it this way in Deuteronomy 30. He says, for this commandment that I command to you today is not too hard for you. 
Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven. And you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go out over the sea and bring it uh, for us, to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You see, Israel's problem was not that what God was asking was too hard, but that they were too corrupt. Secondly, the sprinkling of blood symbolized purification and cleansing from sin. You see, God is entering into a conditional agreement with Israel, but even before he enters into it, he anticipates their failure. You know, the writer of the Hebrews actually explains the events of our passage for us. Uh, He says this in Hebrews 9.18. It says, Therefore, speaking about this event, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, God already knew his people better than they knew themselves. They had pledged their absolute loyalty to the book of the covenant and to him as their king. And he already knows that they won't even last the next few days before they'll be out worshipping the golden calf. And so he inaugurates this covenant with blood, a symbol of their need for forgiveness from sin. You see, in the book of Leviticus that comes after Exodus, God gave the gracious gift of the sacrificial system. An animal could symbolically take the place of a person. A goat, a bull, a lamb receives the penalty the person deserves. And God is saying this covenant will require the shedding of blood for forgiveness. You will fail. You won't be able to keep this. Blood will need to be spilled on your behalf. The sprinkling of blood, secondly, symbolized purification and cleansing from sin, but not just that. The sprinkling of blood symbolized their consecration as a kingdom of priests. As we've read already in chapter 19, verse 5, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, no other place in the Bible are God's people sprinkled with blood. But there is one other place where a person is sprinkled with blood. And that is in chapter 29 when God will give an ordination ritual 
for priests. A priest, at their inauguration, their ordination, would have blood placed on their ears and their head sprinkled with blood in a very similar fashion. You see, priests were mediators between God and man. It's God's plan for his people to be a kingdom of priests. And Moses sprinkles leaders and leaders of blood on the whole congregation and in doing so initiates them into his service. This was God's great intention that his people would be a blessing to all the nations, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of mediators between God and man. But fourthly and finally and Most spectacularly in this verse, behold the great commitment of God to the keeping of his promises. The sprinkling of blood symbolized the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the whole of scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. More, it's the story of God's plan to redeem the world through his son. And every single page speaks of the glories of Jesus. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter starts his letter to uh, Jews mainly dispersed uh, throughout Asia. And he says this, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. As Peter writes the persecuted church throughout Asia, he has Exodus 24 on his mind. And he sees a link between Exodus 24 and these followers of Jesus that he's writing to. Just as the covenant with Israel was sealed by the sprinkling of blood, so too have we. We too have become the covenant people of God by the sprinkling of blood. And it is the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us on the cross. Romans 25 says this, he says, Paul says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Romans 5.9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. But don't be deceived. These two covenants are not equal. One is far superior than the other. One is but the shadow of the other. One is but a stick figure drawing relative to the 8K film of the other. One is but a dim reflection of what was to come with Christ. You see, Christ's covenant is sealed not with the blood of an animal, but his own blood. In verse 8, Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. But the Lord would come to say, Not behold the blood, but in Matthew 26, For this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God himself would come down to rescue his people and enter into an intimate relationship with them. But it would not be sealed by the blood of bulls or animals, but his very own blood. Think about that. I mean, just the thought of spilling a drop of my own blood troubles me. But he spilled it all. The king of glory. Judge, how amazing is his love? You know, Moses was talking about the blood of bulls, and we're talking about the blood of the incarnate Son of God. Church, how much more precious is this blood? The blood of bulls, a symbol God offered through it, the forgiveness of sins by that symbol. How much greater the forgiveness offered through this blood? What sin could you have possibly done whose stain is not easily removed by this blood? His blood is so much greater, but more than that. See, Christ's covenant is greater because the conditions are far greater as well. You see, Christ's covenant is different because it's unconditional and requires only for a person to receive it. You see, Moses' covenant was conditional. If, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. But different to the if of Moses, the Lord Jesus says that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One covenant conditional, the other covenant unconditional. You see, in summary, our passage this morning reveals to us the covenant as it's sealed, and we see glimpses of the glory that await us in Christ. Not just point one, a covenant sealed, but point two, a covenant celebrated as well. You see, a spectacular scene unfolds as the God of the universe enters into a unique relationship with the people of Israel through the reading of his word and the sprinkling of blood. And this worship service is just about to go from one degree of glory to the next. Read with me verses 9 and 10. It says the following, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. The band of 74 return up the mountain together this time, and they see the God of Israel. But what exactly did they see? You know, we're not told exactly what they see, as their attention is immediately drawn to not what they see of God, but what is under his feet. You know, Exodus 33 says, God says that a man cannot see my face and live. And so we know 
that they did not see his face. That they saw what was under his feet probably means that their response was to immediately fall down in worship. And what they see is that he's standing on bricks of precious stone, lapis lazuli, except different from this precious stone of the ancient world. It was as clear as the sky. Moses is grasping for words to describe what he has seen. God has in some way revealed an image of himself to them. Previously, they had made bricks for Pharaoh. Now the God of Israel's feet rests on something infinitely superior. Read with me verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. He did not lay his hand on the chief men, it says. He did not strike them, is what it means. See, sinful people coming to the presence of the holy God are rightly struck down. But because God has entered a covenant with them, because he has sprinkled them with blood and called them to himself, he does not strike them down. This is the beginning of a new and intimate relationship between God and Israel. More, they eat and drink with him. They dine with him. Uh, Douglas Stewart says this in his commentary. He says, in the ancient world and in many places in the modern world, people would not eat together if they were not somehow allies or family. Eating was understood to convey acceptance, to declare approval of those with whom one died. Just as Jesus is dining with tax collectors, non-practicing Jews or sinners, and other such persons was regarded by many in his day as an act of approval of their behavior, so eating a formal meal with others was understood to demonstrate mutual agreement, cooperation, acceptance, and respect. You see, God welcomes these elders to his family table, and it's a beautiful picture of a new intimate relationship between God and man. Those who once cowered in fear and trembling now dine around his table. But this was not just for the elders. They're just the representatives of all the people. See, the God of the universe had decided to enter into a friendship with them, to dwell with them. And it was symbolized by the fact that he now dines with them. But not just them, now us as well. Read with me Matthew 26. Again, Jesus says in verse 20, When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, it's no accident that Jesus chose to celebrate his new covenant with his disciples over a meal as well. It's no accident because he was present at the ceiling of the covenant in Exodus 24. It's no accident because this has always been the plan of God for his people. The coming of Christ is no plan B. It was his only plan, his plan A. God has always been working to create a people so close that they could dwell with him, that they would dwell in such unity that they would eat at his table like friends. 
A relationship so intimate that they could be described as his children and eat of his own produce. You see, God gave us the gift of the Lord's Supper to remind us both of our need for him and his presence with us. He gave it as a gift to nourish us spiritually and to remind us that one day we'll dine with him in his kingdom. Just as Jesus says in verse 29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The plan of God has always been working towards that final day, the coming kingdom of God when we will feast with him as we celebrate the marriage of God and his people. Just like it says in Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In our passage this morning, we see not only a picture of the beautiful covenant we have received through the blood of Christ, but a glimpse of the wonderful celebration that awaits. As the 74 elders dine with God, so too we dine with God at the Lord's table, and we will one day dine with him face to face in the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. But not just point two, a covenant celebrated, but point three in closing, a covenant applied. You see, I want to end this message with a brief word of application for us about today's passage. I mentioned earlier that because of our culture and our experience, we can treat not only the promises of other people with skepticism, but the promises of God himself. But God is different from us. As I hope you've seen through looking at our passage, God never, ever, ever breaks his promises. What he says will always happen. And the fruit of that is that we can experience a deep assurance. I want to close by really addressing this morning two groups of people. And the first is those that are struggling with shame. Now, I wonder whether there are some people here this morning who are riddled with guilt and shame for something that they've done. Maybe it's a hidden sin that no one knows about. Maybe it's a public sin that everybody knows about. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's something you've allowed to happen. And the question you find yourself asking is, can I ever be rid of this guilt and shame? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you are a Christian, he's sprinkled you with blood. Not just the blood of an animal as a symbol, his very own blood, the blood of the incarnate Son over you. You are clean and your sin is paid in full. Just like the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10:19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. If you are here this morning and struggling with shame, that is you. Sprinkled clean. Washed with pure water. But not just for those struggling with shame. The, the second person I want to, or group of people I want to encourage this morning are those that are struggling with doubt. And I wonder whether there are some people here this morning who 
have a question floating in their mind. You're struggling with doubt. Maybe it's because of a difficult season. Maybe it's because of unanswered questions. Maybe it's because of the allure of the world. And the question you find yourself asking is, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it through to the end? This passage ought to be for you a great source of encouragement. He knows you're weak and he knows you're struggling. That's why he's sprinkled you with blood. His covenant with you is unconditional. If you've put your trust in him, he will hold you fast. He will lose none of his own. His plan has always been for you to join him at the banquet table and he will bring you there. Just as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 11, this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Friends, let me encourage you, if you're struggling with doubt, draw near to God, remain faithful. He will remain faithful to you, even though you're faithless, because he cannot deny himself. Well, in our passage this morning, we've seen the covenant sealed as God's people are symbolically purified from sin and ordained as God's priesthood, pointing to the coming work of Christ. And we've also seen the covenant celebrated as the elders dine with God, pointing forward to the coming banquet of the Lamb. Friends, I trust we've seen this morning the deep assurance to be found in God's commitment to his promises. Would you join with me in praying? Look, God, we want to thank you so much for this rich word, this powerful word, this life-changing word of yours. And Lord, we're so sorry that sometimes we struggle to trust you in your promises. Yeah, we want to pause and we want to thank you this morning. We want to praise you this morning that you are far more committed to keeping your promises than we are committed to keeping your promises. Lord, you're so committed to keeping your promises that you would sprinkle your people with blood in advance, knowing that they came committed to something they could never keep, knowing that they would, from the beginning, be in desperate need of forgiveness. And thank you, Lord, that you offer something now, this side of the cross far greater. Not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, but the blood of your precious Son. Lord, you are merciful, you are gracious. Help us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.